This is going to sound strange. Da Method monocunis, the foreman twa father and moder, weef and webnid, hey the word quave. That is, then the blithe-hearted king blessed them, the maker of all creation. Those first two, the mother and father, the woman and weaponed. God spoke to them by word. Thrive and multiply. Fill the evergreening earth with your offspring, your family, your sons and daughters. You are given dominion over the wild beasts and the clean cattle and all things living, all those that tread upon the land imbued with life. Those are some of the earliest words uh, recorded in, of the English language. It's old English, uh, and it comes from an Anglo-Saxon retelling of Genesis. You, you heard the story there, right? That, that's Genesis. Uh, this was a warrior society, and it was held together by kingship, by mutual bonds of loyalty, king and follower. So as you can imagine... That people with that kind of society were far more attuned to certain biblical themes than we are, uh, particularly having to do with kingship, submission, loyalty, honor. So in recounting Genesis, as we began to hear there, uh, not only did they speak of God as the blithe-hearted king. What a great title. Happy-hearted. He's the blithe-hearted king. But Adam was also a king. Eve, a queen. And they had dominion over the creation. And their rule was to cover all the earth. Uh, and it was to be like... It was to be like a family. So when Adam and Eve failed in their faithfulness, their line their dynasty became a fallen dynasty, a fallen lineage. But even, even with that fall, we get this in the scriptures, but the, the, the Anglo-Saxon Genesis enlarges on it. Even with the fall, the Lord God declared that an offspring of the fallen king, an offspring of this line, would one day crush the head of the serpent. So as readers of the Old Testament, the Anglo-Saxons, they were far, I'll just say, they were very sensitive to this promise. As they traced the Old Testament, they looked for it. They, they looked at the ongoing battle between the forces of darkness, the serpent's forces, and this line of the kings. One day, the king would come. The promise would be fulfilled. The blithe-hearted king would be faithful to restore the fallen line. The promised king would mean the defeat of evil, the crushed head of the serpent. And so even as God revealed the line, in the story of the Old Testament, he revealed the line. This would be the line that he would choose. The enemy sought to destroy the promise, sought to destroy it, sought to prevent the return of the king the restoration of this kingdom. 
the designed rule. I think this way of reading the Old Testament, it may help us appreciate Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to walk today. I want to walk through the word with attention to this new king of promise and to the struggle between the un unveiling, the, the revealing, ongoing revealing plan of the restoration and the enemy's attempts to kill it. It's a long story. When the descendants of man began to multiply and they grew strong on the earth, the fallen angels sought early to corrupt this line. If they could just corrupt it, then there could be no promised king. And they sought to do so by intermingling with them. And to a large extent, they succeeded. So corrupt did the line of man become that the Lord God determined to start afresh. I think you know the passages. In Noah and his family, God preserved the line of promise. The whole world had become corrupt, but he preserved. There was a faithful family, and this would be the line of promise. And so for a moment, God gave mastery, original mastery over the creatures. The kind of mastery that Adam had, for a moment Noah had, as a gift. But as soon as the doors of the ark opened, right, the animals fled Noah's hand. The gift was withdrawn because it wasn't his. He was not the restorer. When God revealed the line of promise and he covenanted with Abraham a little further on, the enemy sought to corrupt it again. He could corrupt it by inspiring the effort of human will. So instead of waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise, and Abraham had to wait a long time, he grew impatient, and the enemy lured Abraham, lured him to make it happen through a concubine, Hagar. And so rather than through Sarah, his wife, Abraham fathered Ishmael. This is nothing less than an effort to corrupt the promise. And this line would be a line of human effort. The exertion of human will. Not just in the conception, but it would be woven into that line. And we know that eventually that line became the, the people of Islam. But God's promise held firm. And through his second son, Isaac, the promised offspring of blessing would come. This theme Paul draws out in Galatians. Well, not long after, the work of the enemy was evident within the family of promise. The sons of Jacob, now named Israel. Now Jacob was called Israel. Uh, they felt the bite of the serpent and the poison of jealousy working within them. So even as God revealed more of his unfailing, unfolding plan, Satan again attempts to corrupt. God had revealed through dreams that the 11th son, Joseph, would be exalted among his brothers. 
This dream showed uh, Joseph being bowed down to by his, his brothers and even his parents. What looks more like a king than that? And so as the enemy hears the announcement of this, this must be the promised one. And so the enemy sought to kill Joseph through the jealousy of his brothers. They took him. They were prepared to kill him. And then in a moment, a last moment, greed took over. And instead of killing him, they, they put him in a pit and they sold him into Egypt as a slave. Joseph's out of the picture. Now the concentration was on those sons and soon a famine came. A famine to destroy all the family. They would have died. The chosen line would be no more. They're just swallowed up in a moment. But Joseph had been removed. God's covenant would be thwarted. But as you know, Joseph's task was not to be this re restoring king. That wasn't his role. He was to be the preserver of the promise. And so the family went down to Egypt and they found in Joseph the fulfillment of the dream. And they found Joseph as a ruler of the land and God's chosen line was saved. The works of the enemy thwarted. The working of that poison to kill, to steal, to corrupt, thwarted. Even using, mocking the efforts of the enemy, God preserves his people. Again, Satan and his crew sought to corrupt or kill this line. This line that God had revealed would be his chosen instrument to restore the world, to renew the promise. So as God was blessing his people, he was multiplying them in Egypt. This chosen line, they were growing numerous. The enemy introduced foul worship. They could be corrupted. The worship of idols all around them, the worship of idols. They adopted the worship of Egypt through idolatry and sex. And then through government policy. If corruption couldn't do it, then government policy, through them the powers aim to merge the Israelites, to syncretize them, merge them with the Egyptians, and the line would be gone. It would be disappeared. By killing a whole generation, killing all the males, the females would be absorbed into Egypt, and Israel would be no more. It would be the end, and no king could arise. Well, finally, when the enemy failed at that, and God heard the cry and God began to deliver them, the destructive recklessness of Satan becomes evident in the madness of Pharaoh. Despite ten plagues demonstrating the Lord's favor and his protection of this people, satanic madness overwhelmed Satan. Oh, sorry, overwhelmed Pharaoh. And he sent his army once and for all to destroy this line, to cut them off at the Red Sea. And of course, not only do, does God lead them through the Red Sea, he destroys the pursuing army. The Lord delivered them by the hand of Moses. And through Moses, through this, this person, God showed the kind of character that would be his ruler. Humility, meekness, self-forgetfulness, 
a refusal to exalt himself, and yet filled with the power of God, filled with his spirit, glowing with the glory of his face. This king, the king, the king to come, if we look at Moses as this model ruler, the king to come would be a priest, would be a prophet. The words that he speaks would be the words of God, speaking for God. So just as Adam, just as Adam had spoken, he named the creatures, and whatever he named them, that was what they were. He spoke for God. Moses also spoke the word of God. And it was recorded. It became God's word to the world. And then to Moses, God renewed the promise again. He says, I, I will do this thing that I've promised. From this people will arise a ruler like you who will be prophet, priest, and king. I'll raise up a ruler from my people. The promise is still there. Despite all that had happened, despite all the attempts of the enemy to thwart, to corrupt, to destroy, the promise is there. And then came the time of the wilderness, the exodus, the wandering, and the judges. Why? When we walk through Exodus, I remember this, this recurred to us. Why would this people continuously provoke and rebel against the Almighty God? Why would they do that? He had delivered them. He'd sustained them. He continued to sustain them with bread, with water, daily bread. His presence is evident in a pillar of fire and cloud. What could bring a people to rebel right in the face of the Creator God? What could bring such a madness? It is inexplicable. They show the touch of the rebel angels. This is the touch of the rebel, rebel angels who also looked on the face of God and rebelled. And so just as God had hurled, hurled these fallen angels from the grace of God, they sought, they sought to provoke the people. If they could so provoke them to the same kind of rebellion, then God would also hurl them from his grace. Why not? Of course, he would reject his chosen people. Mission accomplished. The line of kings cut off. They knew they couldn't kill God's people, not in the face of his glory and might. But they could so twist them in rebellion that God would have to slay them. His justice demanded that he slay them. And we know what Moses did. Moses interceded on that moment. And he asked that he would slay him instead. That would be the kind of ruler. That would be the kind of king. And so because of the king that was to come, God spared his people then. Preserving, preserving them. And there were faithful ones there. Those who looked to his promise and trusted in his word. And then the Lord brought them into the land, this land of promise. And the efforts of the serpent 
went back and forth between attempts to corrupt and attempts to destroy. The surrounding kingdoms, they sought to curse the Israelites. They sought to use the power of darkness to somehow uh, counteract the goodness of God. And failing that, this is Balaam, failing that, they sought to seduce them, turn them into idolatrous worshipers, worshiping other gods. And again, God would have to slay them. Or to dominate them, or to enslave them, or to kill them. Anything to cut off this line. And then when the Israelites realized through the period of the judges that they were falling apart, they were becoming like the nations, they were being corrupted, it was working, they cried out to God for a king. That's what we need. They knew the story they were in. We need a king. But when they asked for a king, they asked for a king who would be like the, the rulers of the nations around them. That's what they wanted. They wanted a king to fight battles. They wanted a king to organize them. They wanted a king who would secure them by his own strength. And God, God warned them. This is through Samuel. The kind of king that you are asking for will oppress you. You are asking for a fallen king. They did not want the king of promise according to the promise. They wanted a king according to their desires. And this fallen king would only be like the other kings around them. And so it was, the Lord gave them what they asked for. And he appointed the first king, Saul. And he was according to their request. Saul was strong. He was a head taller than anyone else in the kingdom. He was one they could admire and that the nations could admire and maybe fear. And his approach was to do what the people wanted. He was opportunistic. He consolidated and Saul was the first, the first one to be called Messiah. Our English translations usually don't give it that way, but Messiah means anointed one. Saul was the anointed. He was the Lord's anointed. David called him so. He was Messiah. And so with this first appointment of an actual king as ruler of the people... God had declared uh, that he would, again, he would be blessing the world through this, his people. And when Satan saw it, he jumped. When Saul was anointed, he jumped into action. And despite God showing Saul uh, his favor, how that if he would trust the Lord, if he would wait on him, every victory would be his, honor would be his, Yes, Saul very quickly feared man. Very quickly. It's a puzzle, isn't it? When you read the life of Saul, how is it? How do you so quickly turn from trusting the Lord and hearing his voice to doing it yourself? 
He followed the way of Adam. He followed the way of Satan. And he rebelled. So in contrast to this king, in contrast to uh, this king that the, the people would quickly take to, God chose someone very different. Another Messiah. He sent Samuel to anoint a new king. A shepherd. A youth. A poet. A prophet. A fighter. David. And so David too was a Messiah. And to David, God gave, uh, he gave explicit promises that one of his heirs would be the unique one. We hear again, the, the promise is being maintained. It's, it's narrowing, it's clarifying. It's not just the people of Israel. It is this family, this line. Through the prophet Nathan, God revealed and he announced this house, the house of David, would be the one through whom universal kingship would come. Through whom the rule of all mankind would come. And so God made it known and the powers of darkness heard it. They, they are not omniscient. They did not know any more than anyone else. Which family? Which is the one? And God revealed it. The house of David. The Lord said, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David was not the king that was going to restore, though he was called Messiah, the anointed. He was not the one who would restore all the earth. But the promise held, and God's covenant was renewed, his commitment, and the darkness heard it. So is it any wonder what happened to the line of David? I mean, we fault them. We read the Kings and the Chronicles, and it is so easy to be disgusted dismayed, but they were assaulted with every seduction, every attack. And in the generations following, they were hit with every, every means possible to corrupt them, to destroy the line. There was violence from the nations around. There was discouragement. Everything that the principalities and powers could craft and then when the temple was destroyed by one of these nations, and the king, David's son, was led off to Babylon, David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, was led off to Babylon in captivity, it looked like God had forgotten his covenant. And so the prophets cried out, have you forgotten your covenant? They, they said, how long will your promises go unfulfilled? Lord, you said you would do this and that you would use us as a people to bless all the earth. You would use this family. Where are your promises? 
but they held on to God's steadfastness. They held on to the clear message through the prophets that though the vine be stripped of all its branches, though the vine be cut down to a rootstock, there would be a branch, a branch from the stump of Jesse. It would grow from this stump. And this would be the king. Because again and again, God spoke through the prophets that the king will come and he will bring healing and he will come when all seems desolate and hopeless. And as time passed and the prophets gave the messages of God, the picture filled out. Not only would this Messiah, again, called Christ in Greek, not only would he exalt Israel, Not only would he bring order to the nations, he would release captives. He would heal the lame. He would give sight to the blind. He would restore peace, not just as an end of violence, not just a cessation of war, but he would bring peace to souls. He would bring the forgiveness of sins. And his words would tell the true nature of things. Like Adam at the first, he would speak creation. He would tell the nature. He would have the wisdom of God. And so, and somehow, somehow, he would rule forever and ever. He would be Adam again. Somehow, Adam again. And all the nations would flow to him and submit to him. All the nations of the earth. And there would be one family and there would be one tribe. That picture was there in the scriptures. It was there. God gave it to his people. And so the effort became to, Satan's effort came to bend it, to twist it. All of his lot bent their effort to distort the expectations of the people, to obscure the vision of this Christ, so that their expectations would not line up with what God was actually doing and what he promised. The game plan never changed. Knowing they could not directly challenge the Almighty God, and they could not directly provoke him in his presence, They tried a similar effort to what they had done in the wilderness. So provoke the people, so twist their expectations that the people themselves would destroy the king. The people themselves would destroy themselves and the promise and the hope and that they would lose their own redemption. They themselves would destroy their own redemption. And so by centuries of discouragement from defeat, by fraud and by deception, by false hopes, Satan turned the hearts of Israel to his own way of thinking. Satan and the crew managed to twist the expectations to be like Satan's way of thinking. Hope in the fleshly. 
hope in the perishing. By the might of arms, by the exercise of power, by seizing, by taking, by wielding, by crushing, they would fulfill the promises. And that would be the kind of king they wanted. And then he came with all those expectations in place, the twisted, the corrupted, then he came. The vine had been stripped bare. It had been cut to a rootstock. And the branch sprouted. He came to his own, the promised king, the second Adam, full of the Holy Spirit, perfectly bearing the image of God. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Oh, it seemed like Satan had won. The powers of darkness rejoiced. The kings come and they reject him. The kings come and they don't want him. Only the poor were ready. Only those for whom earthly power meant nothing. The rule, whatever empire ruled over them didn't matter. They suffered the same. They were ready. And the rest, for them, the restoration of God and the picture of the king who heals the lame and gives sight to the blind and releases the captives, for them, that picture mattered. That was the picture they longed for. And so when he came to the Mount of Olives that day, the day we remember now, it was the day, the day before the Passover festival, the people were saying, Hosanna. The poor. The poor were saying, Hosanna. They were addressing, yes, that's right. They were addressing him as the promised king. They knew the story they were in. The ones who needed hope knew they were in a story of hope with a God who is faithful to his word. And the Lord Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, as he walked about, he had shown he was the master of wind and weather. He was Lord over sickness. He was Lord over health. Lord even over death. Even the demons could not oppose him. At a word, he delivered people. He could make bread. He could multiply material. He could change the nature of water so that it become wine. He was master of creation. If this was not the promised king, there could be no promised king. Who could be? But the leaders were deceived. They had accepted a different story. They had been corrupted in their expectations. And he was not their king. Whatever he was, by whatever authority he had, he was not their king. 
This was not the story they had accepted. And so they pressed Jesus to silence these words. Do you hear what they're saying? Silence them. And Jesus replied, if these were silent, even the stones would cry out. So even if those who were calling out, save us, even if those who were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king, even if they only thought of him as David's son, the king of all the earth had to be announced. If these were silent, the stones would cry out. This is the fulfillment of the story. What a moment. Hundreds, even thousands of years, it had been announced. It had been waiting, waiting. The Lord unfolding it, opening up, telling more and more about it, revealing from all the peoples, this family, from this family, this line, Though you try to kill that line, it will be restored. And it came. This is the moment. And the time had come for the king to come to his throne and to do that work, to undo the work of the fall. The second Adam, the first Adam had eaten death. The second Adam came to break its power, to undo the curse. I want to invite you into the wonder of what happened. It grows dull on us, doesn't it? This amazing grace of God, thousands of years in the coming to be. This is the story that we're in. It's not just a story that we remember. We are in it. This promised king is our king, our living king. We are his subjects. We're his citizens. We are now bearers of the message. We're the few. The remnant. Bringing blessing to the nations. For whatever reason, he brought you to Nampa, Idaho. Being in Nampa, Idaho... You would be a bearer of the message here. That being part of the family of the king, you would have the privilege of announcing and inviting that this is an open family, that all who will call on this king will be welcomed and will be given citizenship, made sons and daughters, followers of Jesus have received his spirit the restoration of life. We're partaking of it. We are now partaking of the eternal kingdom. The worship that we have today is part of everlasting worship. We're not just waiting till we die and then enter it. We've entered it already. The spirit in us lives forever. We're part of this new kingdom of grace. And we've come alive Holy Week that we're entering, it's the celebration, it's through remembrance of this work, of this wonder, of the big story, of the central moment. 
the central moment that continues. Redemption offered, the power of death broken, invitation made and life given. He opened the door and the door just stays open. So if you have this life, there is no more important week in the whole of the year. There's no more important time to orient yourself to King Jesus, Christ our King. To orient away from the deceptions of the world because the strategies of the enemy have never changed. He still seeks to corrupt, deceive, steal, kill, and destroy. If he can corrupt your life, you will not enjoy the blessings that you have that are yours by right as the children of God. He can deceive you. You are deceivable. This week in particular is a time to turn from the orientation that the rest of our society has and to celebrate the victory of Jesus and our citizenship. Most of this week, even people, most of the people you go, you go with this week, um, even other Christians will not acknowledge this celebration. So I, I urge you, orient. Orient to the Lord Jesus. You were made to give glory to God. That's the design. That was the design of the first Adam and Eve. To give glory to God and to have a life dedicated to enjoying God. And that's what the second Adam renewed. A life dedicated to enjoying God, glorifying Him. So let's throw off the weights that hinder us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, He's called us into this kingdom of life. And this is a life of restoration. A restoration that never ends. Let's take joy in it. Lord, we thank you that you, you kept for us the story that in your word written, you preserved what you have done. You preserved the story of your salvation, your redemption of the world, your mission. Thank you that you preserved for us through so many assurances that though the powers of darkness rage, though they attempt to cut off your work, to corrupt your people, you will not leave your people. You are steadfast. Thank you that the word encourages and gives life. Lord, we pray that you would work by your spirit to orient us to you and your kingdom. That we would not just forgetfully, blithely go about uh, as, if we, as if we didn't know the truth. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray.